Welcome back to The Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. We're rereading the Aubrey Maturin novels of Patrick O'Brien, and we're really glad to have you with us. Mike, where were we up to last time? What can we expect in this week's episode? Ah, Ian, when last we left our heroes, well, at long last, Jack was at sea, away from the consequences of his extramarital affair, in command of the sloop Ariel, right, Mm -hmm. on a mission to sow the seeds of defection. Trying to persuade a force of proud cattle and soldiers occupying the Baltic island of Grimsholm on behalf of the French. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Catalans, we have our favorite Catalan, Stephen Matron, is there too, and he is plotting the political maneuvers ashore that could lead to a bloodless takeover of the island. In company with them, they have their Lithuanian advisor, Yagiello, this handsome, charming, bashful, <laughs> even just a little weird, who is relishing... Mm-hmm pun intended, stick with us, life at sea, despite the hazards awaiting a lover aboard one of his majesty's ships. Oh, my man, Yagiello. So this week, we might not get to the relish, but we will encounter Swedes and Danes afloat and ashore, and who knows, maybe a little bit of action for Jack Aubrey and his crew. (gasps) We're going to link up once again with a real historical timeline, meet a real historical admiral. And thank goodness this time, one who doesn't have a grudge against Jack Aubrey, one whose wife he has not dallied with. If you'll recall, I think the Ariel, Ian, as as last we left our heroes, had just arrived in Gothenburg. The commandant had presented Stephen with a keg of honey buzzards. And I think we were sort of asking ourselves, just what is a honey buzzard is it? It's not a honey badger. Well, no, but what I know of honey badger, Mike, from videos on YouTube, is honey badger is the badger that can go after anything that eats venomous, poisonous, stinging, nasty stuff. And digging through the natural history of honey buzzards, it seems like a honey buzzard is kind of the same thing, but in a buzzard, right? A buzzard. It, we're not talking about right. Um, the, the commandant even says this is not a common buzzard or a rough-legged buzzard. This is just a honey buzzard. And Stephen's got to make some sense of what that means in terms of natural history. The commandant says what it means in terms of culinary application. He says they're, they're strangled because shooting ruins their flavor. And Maturin, with his dry sense of humor, says, don't they resent this? And well, no, they, they, they come out at night, so we strangle them. And then um, there are so many around that you can no longer see the trees, says the commandant, at my home in Falstabo. And there are eagles as well. And Maturin says, do you salt the eagles too? Oh, no, says the commandant. A salted eagle would be a very whimsical dish. They're always pickled, you know. Otherwise, they would eat intolerably dry. <laughs> Got to wonder, where does O'Brien get this stuff? <laughs> Pickled eagles, salted buzzards, and honey buzzards, forsooth. Um, maybe, maybe, Ian, uh, we can uh, put some videos from YouTube. The honey buzzard actually is a very beautiful bird and a, an amazingly well-protected head yeah. against what are typically hornets and wasps that they go after rather than honeybees. Thank goodness mm-hmm. we don't want them to hurt the honeybees. And... I'm told the only known predator of the giant Asian hornet, which has been recently introduced into the U.S. So maybe we need some European honey buzzards right here at home. Well, every now and again, when we get a hot summer, we get 
press reports of the occasional rogue Asian giant hornet in England as well. So maybe we, we could also do with a honey buzzard or two. Mm, there you go. So I think this is enough to set Stephen on fire for the idea of going to see Falstabo. And right now they're in Gothenburg, which is at the north end of the Sound, and they're on their way to Falstabo, which is on the southern end of the Sound, the Sound being the narrow strip of um, seaway between uh, Denmark and Sweden. Right. And Jack says that, well, you might just get your opportunity to see them and to see Falstabo because the Danes are about. And Jack uses this as the moment to introduce the idea of his esteemed Baltic pilot. I'm going to pronounce him, Mike, as Mr. Pellworm, <laughs> but I'm sure that in Danish it would be Pilworm or something. <laughs> Pellworm will do. Right. That's, that's what he's always been in my head. Well, even even uh, Patrick Tall would uh, would use your pronunciation since none of us, sadly, can can do credit to the Swedes or the Danes. No, indeed. But we get the idea already that this passage is going to be hazardous. Not only is it a narrow stretch, um, it's a stretch of water that has the Danes on one side and they're still again us. They're still still regard the English as the enemy, especially since we bombed their capital back in the uh, in the earlier part of the Napoleonic War. So we're going to go past the right. we're going to go past the Danish shore, and I think originally their hope was to go through at night, so that we wouldn't excite anybody's attention. But the wind doesn't quite work, and they're going to have to pass through the sound in daylight. Yeah, daylight daylight comes, and they're in this small stretch between Sweden and Denmark. And Jack is looking ashore, up and down, very concerned. Stephen comes on deck, and he's certain that. You know, Jack is obviously looking for the eider ducks that Young Yellow had promised them. Um, you know, Jack can't show him any ducks, but he does point out Elsinore. So here's the site of the castle in Hamlet. And right as he does, these eider ducks fly overhead. They dive into the water and Stephen is absolutely delighted. But it immediately turns to horror when the Danes open fire at the aerial with their mortars. That's what Jack has been looking at <gasps> or looking for, so concerned. And, and I love Stephen's line. <laughs> the goss, cried Stephen. They might have hit the birds. <laughs> Forget the aerial. <laughs> they could have harmed a bird here. <laughs> and it's, it's a really interesting, quite tense moment. I've got to say, I'm not super, super kind of wound up about it because I have a feeling that Jack's chosen the right moment to be able to sort of zigzag in and out and defeat the the gunnery that they might, might, might be attempted by the, the Danes. But they're in open water. The wind's not very strong, but there is a current running. And basically, they've got to maneuver so as to defeat the calculations of the Danes who are trying to figure out where do we lob the mortars so that they land. And I think a small mm-hmm. vessel like the Ariel with a current running, with lots of maneuvering, I think it's a, it would take some pretty good gunnery on the part of the Danes to hit the aerial. But still, one of those uh, mortar shells exploding is going to be a good way to ruin your day. Yeah, it is interesting because the pilot that they brought on board is saying, you know, quick, let's run under the Swedish batteries. And Jack, to your point, is saying, no, no, um, the last thing we want to do is be going straight away from them. We want to just keep going by them and zigging and zagging. And they... You know, while this has got to be a, a little bit of a butt-clenching moment, yeah. especially for like Yagello and, and Stephen, um, they take time to launch a small boat because every time a mortar shell explodes, a lot of fish float up to the surface and they're going, ah, fish for breakfast. Mm. You know, let's go get them. <laughs> I think that maybe some of this is for show. They're having great kind of sang-froid. They're very cool and very chill about being under mortifier. 
certainly Jack's not bothered and maybe Yagiello is playing up to Jack and being fearless in the face of gunfire. But they're fearless enough that they begin to spot the local cultural landmarks. And of course, on one side of this sound is the Swedish town of Helsingborg. And on the other side is the Danish town of Elsinore. And Elsinore is the home of Hamlet. And this gets them into a whole other conversation about Hamlet. Now, Yagiello, Mike, I think is, is pretty clearly somebody who's got a fairly high bar in terms of culture. He's quite philosophical. He's quite well read, even if his references are sometimes a little bit askew. Jack, on the other hand, is superficially about as well read as any other officer in the Navy, but no more. <laughs> Not an inch more well read. Oh, right. <laughs> so we get this very funny passage. Um, Jack says he never laughed so much as he did with Hamlet. And Stephen, I think, speaking for the rest of us, goes, well, I, I don't think I recall Hamlet being a comedy. And have, have you read it recently? He says, well, read it? I, I don't need to read it, but I was in the play and I was one of the Ophelias. One of the Ophelias. No, I'm pretty sure Ophelia was just the one character and she's the tragic heroine. But he goes, no, no, no. Ophelia, this part was greater than the whole. I was called back three times, and the other fellows who played Ophelia were not called back at all, even the one that was drowned in a green dress with sprigs. Three times. And we get this really funny kind of rolling narrative about this performance of Hamlet. And this was very clearly, basically, uh, what I would call a smoking evening, like a, sh- a ship's review performance of an evening, probably with rum and tobacco. And everybody just doing a turn. And it turns out that the turn is a lighthearted performance of some aspect of Hamlet with, as it turns out, many Ophelias, one of which is the young Jack Aubrey. But Mike, there's also this really dark tone. It says, and Jack breaks out into one of the bawdy songs that he remembers from his version of Hamlet. And he says, yes, alas. And it all ended unhappy, as I recall. And maybe there's a bit of foreshadowing going on here as well as serving the purpose of this this yeah. funny joke about how uncultured sailors are. We've got this slight hint that Hamlet was a really serious story. And in the end, it wasn't great for the relationships of everybody involved. Yeah. And maybe Jack's the butt of the joke in a way, <laughs> the butt of the joke that O'Brien's telling us. Yeah. And, it, and it's funny. We're getting this kind of, you know, happy, funny, a little more somber, you know, this kind of back and forth a little bit here. Uh, it continues, uh, Stephen sees some of these great birds that he's looking for. He's the white-tailed eagle, and and he heads for bed. He's hoping, you know, for a little time to collect his thoughts, to think about what he's going to be doing on Grimm's home, as well as the possibility of seeing, perhaps, he says, a bearded swan, yeah. perhaps the phoenix himself in the morning. But the morning doesn't greet him with some new wonderful birds. He's greeted by an increasing wind, a short choppy sea, a corkscrewing and pitching ship. And O'Brien writes that he was almost seasick for the first time. That's interesting. He says, uh, the text says, he was not actually sick, but he exhibited a cold copious salivation, a dislike for jovial company, facetiousness or merriment, an intolerance of the notion of food. It was probably that nasty fish of yesterday he thought burst and bellied fish might very well convey all manner of noxious principles. Only a fool would eat them, and only a fool would go to sea exposing his frame to the falling damps. But, Stephen, <laughs> now part of this sounds like, you know, perhaps a little seasick, perhaps it is the fish, 
Perhaps it's just our curmudgeonly Stephen, but he stays up on deck because he can't stand to be below. And it wasn't the falling damps, but the horizontal damps. <laughs> the spray keeps coming over and just soaks him through and through in this incredibly cold weather. And he can't stand it. So he finally decides he's going to go find the ship's surgeon and get himself a little sulfurous ether. Uh, to to calm himself here to feel a little bit better, but he finds that the surgeon, completely incapacitated, has taken it all himself and is sitting there watching his, you know, even <laughs> his bottle of sulfuric acid, which he's knocked over, dripping through the ship, and he's doing nothing about it. And I kind of was scratching my head here, going, "Hmm, ship surgeon taking his own drugs," and uh, yeah. now here we got Stephen all serious in a thing here, and again this the excitement of birds really somber moments here. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Are people a little bit let down by each other as well? There's a bit of a theme of disappointment going on here. Yes, mm. that's right. And it's funny. That's it, right. There's, there's an atmosphere. It's very subtle, but there's this atmosphere of uneasiness in lots of this book. And I'm noticing as we go right. on, O'Brien's taken care to use references that put us firmly no longer on the North American station. We're no longer in the Mediterranean we get references to the geography of the North Sea. We've got the Danish and Swedish weird culture around us, with apologies to listeners who are Danish and Swedish, but we're meant to feel a little bit out of place. And in this out of place setting, Stephen's feeling uneasy. And I think it's meant to make us all feel like we're not sure what's going to happen next. Right, right. <sighs> so the aerial finally got through the sound, got through the patch of bad weather. It says the aerial shot into the calmer warners of Karlskrona, and saluted the admiral. And Mike, this is our chance to meet a real live admiral, not a not a fake one. And as you said at the beginning, not one that has any kind of a a marital grudge against Jack Aubrey. Right? They're not in great shape, though. Stephen Stephen hasn't eaten. He still had this this kind of incipient seasickness on him. He's cold and he's fed up and he's weak. And trying to get out of the Ariel's gig and get up the side of the admiral's ship, he pulls off the maneuver that we know and love Stephen for, which is that. He falls off the ladder and falls <laughs> in the water. <laughs> Fortunately, though, we can see this coming and all the seamen of the aerials crew can see it coming as well. And Jack is ready and he's placed two big stout guys below Stephen to catch him, urge him to clap on with both hands and heave up the side. We get the captain of the fleet. It turns out this is one of Aubrey's old reliable enemies, as he calls them, a guy called Manby. So he greets them pretty roughly and we get to meet the Admiral, Admiral Somarez, and we're already treated to the vision of this Admiral as an older, paler, worn down. He says, looking like a work-worn minister than a sea officer. So this Admiral that Jack's got a lot of esteem for is feeling his age a little bit. And we get into, I think, some of the character of James Somarez in this next passage, Mike. We do. We do. O'Brien writes, he was obviously tired, but he greeted them cordially. It must be years since we met, Captain Aubrey, he said, having congratulated Jack on his rapid passage. The last time was at Gibraltar, sir, just after your splendid victory in the gut, said Jack. Oh, yes, yes, says Sir James. The Lord was good to us that day. And then I I love O'Brien writes, Stephen had been a spectator of that bloody affair. He thought the violent death of 2,000 Frenchmen and Spaniards an odd proof of the Lord's goodness. But he had known other able men with the Admiral's view of divine providence. <laughs> um, ouch. Yeah. You know, a little, little 
you know, it's a little bit about Jack. It's a little bit about the Admiral. It's a little bit about Stephen. There's a little theology wedged in here too. And, and we're reminded, oh, wait, 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 the uh, splendid victory in the gut. And as you had pointed out to me earlier today, that's the very end of Master and Commander as mm. Jack's awaiting his court-martial. Seems like a long time ago, right? It does. And th- this is a chance for me just to quickly mention that as we sit here today, Mike, it's October 21st, it's Trafalgar Day, and we get this reference mm-hmm. to a fleet action. And it's fascinating to think that all the way through the canon, certainly so far, and I'm not going to damage anybody's spoiler hopes, I don't think, by saying we're not going to see a big fleet action in the rest of the canon. We saw a big fleet action once at a distance, and that was the Battle of Algeciras back in 1801 or 1802, as you say, at the end of Master and Commander. And O'Brien's pointing out just what a brutal and bloody and destructive affair, destructive of human life, a big fleet action is. And we've had some conversations um, today on Twitter with, with likes, the likes of Kate Jameson. Kate, I don't know if you're listening, but hello. It's fascinating that O'Brien, I think, feels this quite deeply, the aversion that he has to the the, the waste of human life that happens in a big fleet action. I, I don't think he's taking the, the, the wasting of human life lightly in a frigate action, in a ship-on-ship action, but it's something very different. And in a ship-on-ship action, we can explore character and explore different points of view and you can imagine being an observer there and seeing what's going on and a fleet action like the battle of algeciras and above all like trafalgar as happened um back in uh, 1805 but on this day trafalgar was just such a massive affair of confusion and and bloodshed and you know the fog of war that it's a really, really difficult thing for O'Brien to write about. And he's Mm. giving us maybe a little bit of a reminder about that there. So happy Trafalgar Day. And we're lucky, I think, not to be stuck in the middle of a fleet action with our heroes because it would feel very different. Well, it's it's interesting. And you mentioned how we can't, in in a big fleet action like that, get the other things that O'Brien brings to us, like characters and character development and, and zooming in on the individuals. And, you know, we've got, we just had this mention about the Admiral and, and saying yeah. the Lord was good to us. And, and Stephen's kind of reflecting back now on Sir James's reputation mm. as a blue light Admiral. O'Brien always writes, you know, he says, a friend to tracts and Psalms. But Stephen says to himself that he had known men of the book prove most effectual mm. men of the sword as well. And so just when we think we're going to get kind of a characterization of the Admiral, kind of, okay, now we know all that we need to know about him. And so often in many novels, that would have been it. Stephen thinks, and O'Brien writes, when the Admiral turned to him and he caught his intelligent, penetrating, politely attentive look, he felt his heart rise. This man was no fool. So I love here the the balance and the depth that O'Brien adds in just those little strokes to this painting yeah. of both characters, Stephen and the Admiral here. And we're going to get treated to this really great, deep, mature conversation between Stephen and Jack and Somerez, and we'll, we'll go through it turn by turn. But Mike, uh, there's, there's something that's missing here. We're about to get mutual esteem. We're about to get plot. We're about to get character. We're about to get to the heart of the tensions and the decisions that are driving this plot. And nobody's eating anything. This in any other book, this would have been a dinner, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> there's there's not even 
biscuits and Madeira. There's, we're going to have this really, really great conversation and nobody's feeding themselves. I don't know what, O'Brien must have been having an off day. This this passage that's coming up right now deserves a meal. Yes, yes, it does. It does. And I think, you know, it may be that, um, I'm, I'm trying to think back here, it may be that some some wine and some snacks were served. I'm, I'm trying to think here. I stick it in the notes here because it certainly sounds like a, an eating situation, a dining situation yeah. for O'Brien here. And right. Jack hasn't mentioned to himself that he's tolerably sharp set either. So maybe we're, we're, we're asked to believe that that's all okay. Right. But meanwhile, we've, we've got this really great, very mature <laughs> dialogue between Jack and the Admiral. First of all, um, Jack's noticing but maybe based on his experience in the Mauritius command, how the burden of paperwork and the burden of administration sits on somebody in in high command. Jack remembers that when he was a commodore of a small squadron, and now he sees Somarez, who's in commander in chief of the Baltic. Somarez absolutely was commander in chief of the Baltic, and was was there on that station for many years. I can't remember exactly how many, but that was his place of uh, place of business, and that has all of the logistical and administrative and political and intelligence strands behind it, as well as the purely military. Mm-hmm. And the Admiral, speaking of intelligence, gets to read the communications that Jack and Stephen brought for him. He gets to learn that there is this understanding between Jack and Stephen about the nature of the mission, not just Jack as the captain of the transport, but actually the person who has a close connection to the political advisor. And Stephen gets the chance to play in what he knows about the um, nature of the control of the island. They also get talking with one of Stephen's intelligence colleagues, Mr. Thornton. And Mike, again, we've seen this before in other books. These two people meet each other as intelligence professionals, giving no sign that they actually know each other or they're aware of each other's work. And meanwhile, we learn a lot about the discontent that's been going on on Grimm's home. And it's due to this lack of wine and tobacco. They don't have wine and tobacco. They've actually been able to to also cut off some supplies. They had captured a ship that was taking wine and tobacco, but it's it's an opportune moment right now because the senior French officer on the island has left. One of the senior Catalan officers, Stephen's godfather, is now controlling the island, but the French are sending a general back and he's going to bring a mixture of Poles and Saxons and French to replace the Catalan who are going to be taken off of Grimsholm. So, uh, you know, we learned that they're they're short on some supplies. They've been cut off by the British. The French officers who are going to now reestablish control of Grinsholm are headed for the island, and they're in the midst of building a new battery, which is going to make it even harder to take by force. Uh, we already know that the you know the losses could be catastrophic if they try to take it now. It will be even worse here. And the suggestion that comes. From Stephen is interestingly a very Jack Aubrey-ish suggestion. He says this, he uses a phrase, we must risk all at one throw and do so at once, which is the lose not a minute of Jack Aubrey way back in post-captain and master and commander, right? Stephen's saying, land me on the island as soon as possible. Right. Don't send me in a man of war like Ariel because they'll spot that far ahead. Um, Let's use a Danish vessel bringing supplies. We can load that with the wine and tobacco that they don't have. And Stephen engages the Admiral in a conversation to say, do you have a prize like that close by? And Mike, this is these three men plotting strategy here with none of the worries about hierarchy or personal digs or vendettas that we might have had on other occasions in other books. 
No, it's fabulous. It's it's fabulous. They're all deferring to one another. They're talking. They're considering each other's opinions. They're getting, you know, they're making the best decision. It's so much better than what we've seen before. And, and O'Brien kind of deepens it a little bit for us. He writes, the atmosphere in the great cabin had become extremely grave. In the last few minutes, the attempt had taken on a living immediacy, moving from the area of general discussion and the weighing of possibilities to that of immediate action. And all those present knew that when Matron said all must be risk at one throw, the yeah. all included his own life. They looked at him with some of the respect due to a corpse or a man under the sentence of death and Jack with the deepest concern. Oh, man. And maybe we're back to this idea of Stephen having this existential dread that makes him doubt his place in the world and doubt the future of his life. Now, he's got his Diana bearing uh, bearing a child, I think we think in Paris at the moment. So he, he does have a future, but he seems to really come fall back on this sense of dread and this sense of dislocation. And they can see it in Stephen, I think, and they're, they're worried for him. Anyhow, Somera says, there's no prize within a week's sailing. We can't wait that long. Jack remembers that they spotted a cat. And by the way, a, a cat is, uh, I had to go ask the gun room about this. So big hello to everybody in the gun room, especially to, to Marshall, to Don and to Adam. Thank you for, for a steer on exactly what a cat is. These days, I think you'd say a cat is a particular rig, a particular way of having the sails configured. Back in the 18th and 19th century, a cat was the name for a bluff bowed, probably shallow draft, kind of square, thick, agricultural looking vessel often used for coasting. The bark Endeavour that was sailed by James Cook on his voyage of discovery around the world, discovering Australia and the uh, and the South Pacific Islands, was a Whitby cat. And again, this is this is yeah. part of the North Sea atmosphere. Okay. A cat is a sort of northern European working ship. So Jack remembers that we spotted a cat and that maybe it would be struggling to escape and that maybe it's sailing under license. So maybe we can catch it and temporarily change the law, <laughs> which the Admiral says is, is a bit of yeah. a risk, but you know what? It's worth the risk. Let's go and see if we can get one of these Scandinavian style working boats, one of these cats, and use that as our, you might say, Trojan horse to take the, the tobacco and the alcohol into the island and use this as the means by which we infiltrate Stephen and turn the hearts of the Catalan occupiers. And then Stephen caps it off. And I love this because we, you know, we get a little light, a little intense, and again, a little light again. And Stephen says, this is a situation in which I believe we must not lose a minute. <laughs> so not only does he sort of hearken back to that, but he actually says it now. And O'Brien points out how, how much glee it gives Stephen to be the one saying that this time instead of the one to whom it is said. Oh, well, Mike, um, all this talk of tobacco and spirits and lose not a minute I, I think this might be a good moment for us all to go and grab a glass of grog what do you say ah with all my heart <laughs> we want to take this moment during the break to say a big thank you and a big welcome to those of you who have begun to join us as supporters on patreon we're really excited that this is a new way for us to engage with you all and for you to support us as we keep growing and developing the podcast we're excited to share some exclusive benefits with our Patreon supporters, and we hope that more of you can join us as supporters on Patreon. However much, 
however little you want to pledge, it's going to help us to defray the expenses of the podcast and keep this thing growing and moving along. Please join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash lovers whole. And we look forward to seeing you and patrons who have already supported us. We are loving your feedback and learning more about what you'd like us to be scrolling away over there. Thanks again. Welcome back. You're with the Lubbers Hole, and we're with Jack and Stephen and the crew of the Ariel. So, Mike, before the break, we were talking about Jack and Stephen and Admiral Summerez putting the final touches to this plan to set off, capture a cat, one of these Scandinavian working vessels, and use that as the Trojan horse to try and infiltrate the fortress of Grimsholm. Right. You know, and Stephen is thinking it, it would be ideal if it can have actual tobacco and wine there, that that could really help turn the tide there, sort of like the way he crossed a few people's palms in the Mauritius command. And uh, the admiral is telling him, you know, yeah, we have plenty of tobacco, but really all we really have is Navy rum unless we go to the captains and ask them to provide the wine from their private stores. So, um that's there. You know, that's going to be something they're going to have to provide. And Stephen is also asking, as as he asked Sir Joseph Blaine before, that the Catalans not be taken as prisoners of war, but transported to Spain, arms and baggage given all honors with a lot of respect, because he says that you know the least appearance of a slight might have the most unfortunate effects. So it's still not. A done deal, is it? There's loads of chances for this mission to go wrong. Right. Not not least of which, they're going to have to scrape around and find some booze. So I, I love the quote that opens the next chapter. It says, It was a black night for the squadron when the Ariel slipped her moorings and stood out into the rain-swept midnight sea, for she carried with her most of the wardroom's wine and an uneasy proportion of the foremast jack's rum and tobacco, as well as 20 prime hands. And big respect again to, to James Somarez. We learn here that the Ariel had boats crowded about her, stores flowing in under the immediate supervision of Sir James. The Admiral, it says, contributed three tierces of a noble claret. That, that's what, like 105 gallons or something, Mike. That's a lot of claret. Right. Maybe enough for a whole evening in, you never know. <laughs> the Admiral contributed three tierces of a noble claret observing that he should willingly drink green tea for the rest of the commission rather than jeopardize Ariel's chances. And after that, no wardroom could do less. Well done. Well done. So they've got the booze, they've got the tobacco, they've got some extra hands, but to succeed, they're going to have to find that cat to find this Scandinavian working boat. So Jack, the master, and Mr. Pellworm, the pilot, all plot courses and Jack's saying, let's all independently calculate this out and let's see if we reach the same course. And they all do to within a hair. So they've got this course that means that they're going to intercept the cat just as dawn comes, several hours, in fact, after dawn. And Jack says, the lookout that first sights the cat shall have 10 guineas and remission of sins, short of mutiny, sodomy, or damaging a paintwork. Good line, Jack. I think I'll borrow that one. <laughs> Special get out of jail card. I love that, yeah. <laughs> well, and we and we go right from that great line to Jack heading down to eat with Stephen, 
and and Stephen's gotten ahead of himself. He he quickly hides his surgical instruments because he's been carving up their first honey buzzard. Um, and then he gives Jack this incredibly extended lecture on the breastbone and the breastbone of common beasts and the breastbone of the honey buzzard, to which Jack replies, eats rather like a pig, don't it? <laughs> as he as he munches away. <laughs> Oh. Another example of subtleties being lost on Jack. I think he he didn't quite get the subtleties of Hamlet and he hasn't quite got the subtleties on his palate of honey buzzard. But, you know, it's okay. At least they're eating, right? At least we're getting a, at least we're getting a dinner. Right. Well, he, he knows, right. He knows dinner is for dinner, not for anatomy lessons, right? <laughs> <laughs> so Stephen, oh. Stephen at this point heads off to bed. He says he likes to sleep upon both ears, which I think means sleep soundly. And meanwhile, Jack is up there. He's fretting about the crew because the aerial is still an unknown crew to him, really. Fretting about the course. Right. And are we going to spot the cat? And yeah. Speaking of the crew not being well known to Jack, Mike, we had this conversation earlier on um, with Wittgenstein, who's a midshipman who'd sailed with Jack before. We get this mention of Jack's age and we get back into this idea of youth versus age and experience. And Jack says that he thinks the crew looks young. And Stephen, as Stephen often does, points out the contrary point of view. He says, many of them will surely see you as old, Jack. And Wittgenstein gets into conversation with Jack. Jack says, how do you come along? Pretty spry, sir, thank God, although none of us are as young as we used to be. I see you're pretty spry too. Well, fairly spry, all things considered. Mm. (laughs) Right. And, you know, we just had Jack thinking about how old the Admiral looks, and now here they are talking about aging again, Jack thinking about this. Yeah, it's interesting. Jack finally gets off to sleep after all this worry, 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 and talking about how he's you know fairly spry, all things considered. And he's awakened at dawn when a sail spotted, well, too early for the cat. And it's not the cat. It's, it's a three-masted vessel. The master says, you know, I think I've seen her before. It looks to be the mini, a Danish merchantman who sometimes sails under English license, sometimes under French license, sometimes is a pirateer, or both if the opportunity offers. And she's pretty heavily armed, 14 Danish six-pounders, but probably not a match for the aerial. But she has, the master reports, outraced the aerial twice before. Nevertheless, Jack decides, let's go after her. She's headed fast towards Grimsholm, as opposed to the cat, which is going away from Grimsholm. And if the Ariel chases the Mini and picks her up, he's going to get to Grimsholm much faster than try to go back, get the cat beat back up and risk the time that the French officers arrive on the the island before Stephen can get there. And it's a classic Jack Aubrey move, isn't it? He's got to make a quick decision. He's choosing to take the aggressive move and... If it pays off, it's going to be great. He gets to grab hold of many of the, the goals that he had, which is, you know, f- find a friendly local looking sale and get making rapid rapid progress towards Grimm's home. It is a risk, though, because this ship is no cat. She's no short, fat, slab-sided cargo vessel. She's got a turn of speed. But surely this is a challenge that Jack relishes. Even in the, the deep-laden aerial, I think Jack's up for the sailing challenge here. Yeah. He uh, tries to figure out a little bit, raises his Danish colors, tries to look a little bit more like a merchant, sails casually across to her. And and he's hoping that as a merchant man, she's not going to be so wary, but she spots them right away and starts to fly. 
and Jack heads after, hoping that he can catch her by the end of the day. And, uh, you know, O'Brien tells us that he's taken this pretty seriously now. Yeah. And we we get the comparison with the old piratical version of Jack. It says he had chased for a fortune before now, but he had not chased with so great urgency in his heart. From a merely personal point of view, mm-hmm. he had undertaken to do a difficult thing. He must bring it off. But much more than that, he understood the importance of the task in hand, the capital importance of Grimm's home. And this is Jack, the mature seaman, who sees the grand strategy and sees his part in it. And O'Brien goes on, he says, nothing would prevent Stephen from making the attempt, nor should it. Jack had the greatest confidence in Stephen's powers, yet the danger would be far less if he were set down on the island before the French officers arrived, perhaps reversing the whole situation. The Frenchmen had reached Hollenstein on Tuesday, and if they took passage in such a flyer as the Mini, they might be in Grimsholm very, very soon indeed. And it was by no means impossible, says O'Brien, that they were aboard her this minute. Her course would agree perfectly with such a voyage. Wow. Well, Jack's whole deal with his career in the Navy is to be ready to catch a look on the bounce, to take opportunities when they arise. And he's saying this is probably one such opportunity, but it's not a lighthearted opportunity. It's a serious opportunity to get ahead on this very challenging task. And we get this long drawn out duel now, Mike, between Ariel and the Mini. They're trying to find sailing conditions that are the most advantageous to the Ariel and disadvantageous to the Mini. They're facing gusty, tricky winds. We see all of the the tropes that we see in a sailing chase already in the cannon. We see the Mini starting her water. We see the Mini throwing her guns over the side. And Jack is so <laughs> so fixated on the chase that he turns down a suckling pig, which must be pretty serious. Right. And the wind starts to drop, which puts the advantage back with the Mini. But Jack seems confident so that when Stephen asks, are they going to catch her? He says, I should never count the bear's skin before it is hatched. Oh, no. <laughs> Masterful O'Brien. What does that immediately take us back to? <laughs> uh, post-captain and Flora the bear. There we go. Right. I love this. Don't count your bear skins before they're hatched. <laughs> I love that. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's getting a little tougher and tougher. The mini has better quality sails, not this worn-out Admiralty number 8, Jack thinks. The glass is rising. There's a falling wind. The mini's pulling ahead. You know, Jack would like to fire at her, but he fears slowing his progress and he can't maul the ship that they need for Stephen's mission. Ariel's royal mass sprung when a skysail blew out. Jack is really tense now and he's very distracted by Stephen and Yagiela, who are, are, you know, having this completely unrelated conversation about Amber. And, and it's like Jack can't think, but he orders the water overboard. And just as they're about to do that, the mini changes course. Huh. Um, on the new course, Jack's advantage. He breaks out all his sails and the mini starts losing ground. And Jack says, you know, he, he's, he's trying to figure out, is, is she headed for an inshore ally or is she running from another enemy? Hmm. And then we discover, it's funny, I was reading this and thinking, oh, maybe this is one of those lame duck tricks that we know Jack loves. But straight away, another sail is spotted and we get this dialogue. Oh, yes, sir. I believe I know her. Hermaphrodite on the starboard tack. She's coming about. I recognize her for sure. What is she? Asks Jack. Humbug, sir, said the midshipman in a rather hesitant (laughs) roar. (laughs) 
Oh, Mike, this is this is like my bankers are whores all over again. Humbugs, says the Mitchell. Right, right. Jack can't believe that he's heard it right. What did you say? He cried. Humbug, sir. And from the bows comes a peal of honest mirth, while within arm's reach of the captain, three young gentlemen writhed in an effort to contain themselves. So this is a joke, it says, but one that newcomers could not know. Just before the Russians joined the Allies, a facetious captain of the Royal Navy had captured one of these Russian vessels, a very distinctive tyne-built hermaphrodite, a fine sailor, and had changed her impossible Russian name to this, the only humbug ever known or likely to be known on the Navy list. So, <laughs> Mike, in, in honour of my hometown and in honour of Trafalgar Day, I'll just say, how are the lads to the tyne-built hermaphrodite? Um, the tyne is the river where Newcastle is. The tyne is the river that was the home port of Admiral Cuthbert Collingwood, who was second in command at Trafalgar. And if you've ever sailed in or out of the River Tyne, you'll know that there's a massive statue to Cuthbert Collingwood with four Trafalgar cannons from HMS Royal Sovereign standing watch over the harbour entrance at Tynemouth. So a Tyne-built hermaphrodite, I think, is a boat that I can relate to. Again, happy Trafalgar Day, especially to all the expatriate Geordies out there. Yeah, well done. Well, luckily, Lieutenant Hyde explains the situation to Jack, so he doesn't lose it, thinking that he's got this drunk midshipman. And and the Mini is heading for the Fortin Bank in the Kraken Channel, just north of Poland. And, and there's a series of shoals that she hopes that she can pass that the heavier aerial will not. Um, Pellworm tells Jack that he thinks he can carry the aerial through. And the chase now goes from this kind of tearing, flying away, wondering about the sails to a very slow, tense, you know, the only sound is the leadman's chant over and over again here. And they make it through one very shallow spot. And the mini turns quickly and boom, she's grounded. I mean, Mike, she should have known, right? Every everybody knows that a vessel right. chasing or being chased by Jack Aubrey is gonna is gonna it's gonna run. Aground. That's right. Oh, so poor then for oh. not realizing the rules of the canon. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so we get two great payoffs for Jack. First of all, the 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 foe runs aground. It happens all the time. It happened in oh as far back as post captain the cutting out of the Fanchula, and we also get this great payoff that Jack's suspicion that the Mini could be on the same track as the boat that's taking the French officers to Grimm's home, that pays off as well. Mini was that vessel. Mini was the vessel carrying yes. the French officers because Mini launches a boat with French officers standing on deck. Ariel hails her, tells her to hoist in the boat. There's a pistol shot aboard the Mini. We never really get to see what was going on in this scramble, but the French officers drop into the boat. The Mini strikes her colors to surrender. And meanwhile, the Ariel tries to stop this fleeing small boat carrying the French officers, fires over the fleeing boat, and then fires a broadside, blowing this small boat to pieces. They take possession of the Mini, and they start work to try and get her off the bank to lighten her and get her loose. They're, unfortunately, they, you know, they work and work. They're making no progress getting her loose. Um, they, they've gone out, they searched for survivors, and they found one, an unconscious, wounded 17-year-old who Stephen is tending to. Jack is getting really worried here. They can't get the mini off. There's a big storm brewing. He really needs the humbug in with him to get the mini free. But the humbug has already missed the channel and grounded twice itself. And, and pretty soon, if they can't do something, they're going to have to abandon this prize. Stephen can't get anything out of the survivor. He's comatose, but but thinks that he doesn't look like an aide-de-camp 
which starts to throw in to question, you know, were, were those the real French officers or other mm-hmm. French officers? But Jack thinks, you know, if he'd been on board and if he'd been the general, he would have tried to escape by boat, but he would have been smarter about it. Yeah. Stephen asked to speak to the Minnie's captain to try to learn more about Grimm's home and where they're going and who the passengers were. But Hyde tells him that the French officers shot the captain before they left. Hmm. They do fetch his mate, Jackson's for the Minnie's master, and they send Pellworm off to bring the humbug in so they can try to get the Minnie free here. And then Stephen tells Jack, it's another one of these kind of Stephen giving a little stoic advice to Jack not to worry. (laughs) This whole idea about, you know, is it the French general? Was it not? Was it? There's nothing they can do about that at the moment, regardless of whether the French general is alive or dead. You know, they'll hear more about the French officers in the morning. And just then... ah, Just then, we get this violent rending sound, it says in the text. A confusion of voices in the darkness. Jack disappeared. Now, so far, Mike, this this moment feels like your typical Jack Aubrey Axe and Stations moment, but we don't follow Jack on deck. We don't even find out what the rending sound was. We stay with Stephen. And it really drives this really dark, introspective atmosphere. He says, Stephen waited, and then, the rain increasing, he went down to his cot where he lay staring at the candle flame in his lantern, his hands behind his head. He says, physically he was tired, and his body relaxed throughout its entire length. His mind was in much the same state, floating free, detached, as though he had taken his old favourite, the tincture of laudanum. And Mike, well spotted, they foreshadowed that a little while ago. Mm -hmm. He felt no particular anxiety. The attempt that Jack's making must either succeed or fail. He hoped with all his heart for success. But, and this is the really moment for me, but all his heart did not amount to a great deal. Now that some essential part of its core seem to have died. And Mike, we've rewound right back to fortune of war and the oh, moment over the relationship with Diana. Right. Yet on the other hand, he felt more able to command success in that it meant no less to him, but command it with a strength that arose not from fundamental indifference to his own fate, but to something resembling it that he could not define. It had a resemblance to a despair, but a despair long past with the horror taken out of it. Yes. So here's Stephen thinking not only Jack's attempt, succeed or fail, but even Stephen's attempt on Grimm's home. And this idea, this idea of of a resemblance to a despair, but a despair long past with the horror taken out of it. Gosh, Brian's ability to write inside the mind and the soul of a character is is just uncanny. Yeah. And the confidence to, to put this in at a moment of what otherwise would be high action. You know, we've been craving some action and, you know, facing the storm and heaving on ropes and saving the day. That's all happening out of shot on deck. And instead we're down below with Stephen in his cot reflecting on life itself. Oh gosh, it's deep. It's really good writing. Like you say. Right. I remember I'm reading this passage again and, and I'm thinking about what we're going through here in 2020. And I'm thinking, yeah, Stephen's attitude's a far cry from doom scrolling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and a lot of what's going on here. So I just love how O'Brien kind of, you know, immerses us in the lives of the character and, and doing so immerses us more deeply in our own lives. I, I just love that. Oh, that's great. Oh, gosh. 
And the only thing that we need to sort of put a button on this moment of really profound introspection is one last little reminder that we're in the world of O'Brien. So just to point out and punctuate this moment, we get a bucket full of impenetrable nautical jargon. <laughs> a midshipman comes up to Jack right. and says, if you please, sir, the spare anchor is new puddened. Very good. Very good. Then bend the bitter end to it. The bitter end, Mr. Robotum. Oh, yes, sir. The bitter end it is. The humbug arrives and they're going to spend the night laying out a system of anchors and buoys and cables. They're going to try, it says here, to pluck the mini from her bed or tear her guts out. So, Mike, this, this leaves us with some questions, doesn't it? It does. It does. Not only have we got to figure out, well, what did O'Brien mean by the bitter end? Does he mean the seaman's definition of the bitter end, which is the very, very endmost end of, a, of an anchor uh, cable? Or does he mean something else about bitter and endings <laughs> in the more prosaic term? Right. Yeah. If they finally get this system all in place and they end up tearing the guts out of the mini, what happens with this mission? And can we get Stephen out of the existential funk that he's in, lying down in his bunk below? Can Jack summon up of the and more of this maturity and courage and decisiveness? We're almost at the peak, I think, here, Mike, of the excitement in this book. You can feel the story building to a climax, and we're only seven chapters in. <laughs> and we've got this whole slew of questions that we've been asking all along here. Stephen and Diana, Jack and Sophie, Kimber. But we're in the middle of action here, and so all that's still on the sidelines. There's still plenty to play for. Mike, I think the only thing for it is to keep turning the pages. What do you say to a bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, I would like that of all things. of sins short of mutiny sodomy or damaging a paintwork good line jack i think i'll borrow that one <laughs> special get out of jail card. i love that yeah <laughs>